to my little friend. Again, everyone, Glenn People speaking, and you're listening to episode three of Say Hello to My Little Friend, the Beretta Cast. Now, if you cast your mind back to the last episode, if you listen to it, um, I began a two-part series on religion in the public square, so I'll be finishing that off today. Now, last time, I said a bit about the idea that I've called prohibitionism, the view that we should not vote or lobby or support any policy or idea in the public square simply on the basis of our religious convictions, even very strongly held religious convictions. Now that idea, although the name prohibitionism is not used, was advanced in recent years by Dr. Robert Audy, a professor at Notre Dame University in Indiana, for example, in the book that he co-authored with Dr. Nicholas Waltersdorf of Yale University, and that book was called Religion in the Public Square. Now today, I'm going to move on from the initial description and criticisms of that view that I made last time. I'm going to talk now a bit about modern liberal political philosophy, and the reason that philosophers in that camp have given that lend support to the belief that we should keep our religious beliefs out of our public lives. Now before we get underway, I'm not yet sure of the level of sophistication that this podcast should have, whether I should try to keep things intellectually light, or whether whether we should really have some dense sessions of complex material being discussed. Uh, This episode is maybe a little on the heavy and dry side, but do bear with me. I'm still experimenting with this thing, okay? All right, so let's, let's start to look at our main subject now. The main idea that I will be looking at today is basically this, and it's an argument uh, with two premises that led to a conclusion. One, all policies that we advocate must be justified in the right way to our fellow citizen. Two, policies that have religious grounds lack the right kind of justification. And three, therefore, we should not advocate policies that depend on religious reasons. Now, that's a very straightforward argument. So we have two important claims that are supposed to lead to the conclusion, which is number three. Those claims, firstly, all policies have to be justified in a certain way. And secondly, policies that are justified solely on religious grounds all fail to be justified in the right way. Two claims. I think that I can show that there are problems with both of those claims, actually, but my issues with the first claim are fairly subtle and detailed, and to keep things as clear as possible, I won't delve into them in a podcast. So, firstly, I'm going to introduce a term here. What is justificatory liberalism? Well, it's the position that I'm examining. And I'm going to use the terms liberalism, political liberalism, and justificatory liberalism to refer to basically the same thing. Now, in popular usage, you know, in the media and culture, the term liberal tends to mean someone on the left of the political spectrum. 
In historical terms, like in classical liberalism, it refers to the likes of John Locke and others who would probably be called conservative in today's political climate. But I want you to forget both of those uh, understandings of the word. In political philosophy today, the term liberal refers to neither of those things. Now, I'm not going to delve into everything about liberalism either. I'm only talking about the liberal perspectives on justifying our beliefs and policies to our fellow citizen. The father of modern political philosophy is the 20th century political philosopher. By modern, I mean really modern. Is the 20th century political philosopher John Rawls, who died in 2002. So I'll start with him, because really the other people that I refer to were just developing Rawls's ideas and taking them further. According to Rawls, you can't just subject people to policies because they are good or right policies. According to Rawls, properly showing respect for people means justifying those policies to them. Now, he uses a very famous mental device called the original position. That's basically the state of affairs where society doesn't exist. Society doesn't yet exist. You have to imagine this as a kind of mental device. And we're standing around the planning table with our fellow future citizens deciding what the basics of public policy and our constitution should be like. So it's like the boardroom of society. In that hypothetical situation, you have to justify your policies to your fellow citizens as free equals, treating them with respect. Now that sounds good, and it is. You must do this from behind what Rawls calls the veil of ignorance, which means that you don't know which place in society you will occupy. So you are motivated to make your policies in everyone's best interest. Okay, you with me so far? Here's where it gets interesting. What if you happen to believe that same-sex marriage, for example, because, you know, I like controversial examples, uh, same-sex marriage is a moral abomination in the sight of God, and that to allow it is to undermine the moral climate of society and to invite the wrath of God against individuals, maybe even societies, that permit it. Now, if you think that, then you will also think that this policy is justified to all other citizens in the sense that it's in the best interest of your fellow citizens. I mean, who wants to invoke the wrath of God? Not me, thank you very much. But it's not that simple. According to Rawls, in the original position, you have to make yourself ignorant of factors in society that would make you biased, so that your decisions, our, our decisions, in this hypothetical situation are disinterested. Now, there are numerous such factors in the arbitrary, accidental circumstances that we find ourselves in in the real world. Uh, in real life, there is, uh, quoting from Rawls, a diversity of philosophical and religious belief and of political and social doctrines, end quote. Now, surveying this list of arbitrary facts that might befall us in society, including all of the above, Rawls says that, quote, this constellation of conditions I shall refer to as the circumstances of justice. Key term, that is, circumstances of justice in rules. Uh, in the original position, we are aware of the circumstances of justice, so we know that there is such a diversity, but we don't know which circumstances we will find ourselves in. The veil of ignorance prevents us from knowing any facts in, that would unduly influence us as we make the rules, so that we have to be prepared for the rules to apply to us without partiality and to nobody's advantage or disadvantage. So we must make decisions without knowing how wealthy we are, how attractive we will be, what race we will be, or, among other things, 
what religious beliefs we will hold. Now, Rawls obviously cannot have people in the original position knowing nothing. I mean, that would be useless. Um, so he says in the original position, quoting now, For the most part, I shall suppose that the parties possess all general information. No general facts are closed to them. And yet, and this is me now, not rules anymore, and yet they do not know any religious claims to be true, such as the claim that God exists, that humans are created with certain intentions with respect to gender relationships, uh, for example, that men are not supposed to have sexual relationships with men, to go back to the same-sex marriage issue, uh, or that we have any particular obligations to God, or that there are any particular consequences, either in this life or the next, for failing to meet those obligations. Now, Rawls's theory seems to entail the claim, then, that the existence of God is not a basic fact about the world. I won't stop here to say much about that, but you can already see why a number of religious people will reject the theory right there. Let's press on. In the original position, Rawls said, we need to come up with policies that everyone can accept. We need to find what has been called overlapping consensus. That means that while in the real world everyone believes different things and everyone wants different things, of course, we should only propose policies that we could get consensus on based on what people do believe and want. Only the things that everyone would agree on should become real-world policy. So what becomes public policy will be the area of overlap or convergence of everyone's different sets of beliefs and desires. Okay, That's what Rawls calls public reason. Thomas Nagel, a famous philosopher who once wrote an intriguing article called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? You know, the thing that flies. He wrote of convergence theories of justification in general, which is what this is, and liberalism in particular, the political result is thought to be right because it is rationally acceptable to all, rather than being rationally acceptable to all because it is by some independent standard right. Now, I think that may be a case of the cart before the horse. But the fact is, many features of modern liberal democracies are not acceptable to all, any more than religious beliefs are. We have socialists living in our midst. We have racists. We have people with considerably different beliefs about justice. And there is no consensus among all on even basic things like property rights, for goodness sake. Now, of course, we could always avoid difficulties like this by conveniently building into the concept of reasonable or rational all the features that we want to see in our version of a liberal democracy. So we could say, well, reasonableness just includes equality of all races, property rights, no religious values being used as grounds for public policies and so forth. Indeed, the standard answer one might expect from political liberals would be something along the lines of, well... These are the principles of justice that we have to start with. And any comprehensive view that is at odds with them, we can simply leave out of the public reasoning process. I mean, they're wacky. Who needs their overlap anyway? But the people being ignored here think that they do hold their beliefs reasonably, and that those beliefs are not arbitrary features like economic status or colour. If that is the way that the prohibitionist wants to go, just ignoring them, then all he needs to do is to say, no reasonable person has any religious grounds for their proposed policy. Because if anyone had such grounds, they're not being reasonable. Now that's kind of easy, isn't it? One would hope, however, that nobody intends to have nothing more than a battle of definitions. So to make progress, let us press on further into the 
question of justification, which thankfully does not end up with such a stalemate. Enter Gerald Gauss. Gerald Gauss, in my view, is the most promising currently writing advocate of a basically Rawlsian political liberalism. Plus, more interesting to me, he has said more on the issue of religion in the public square than Rawls did. So that interests me. Gauss has modified Rawls's position on the justification of beliefs to our fellow citizens. It's true, he grants, that sometimes you can't convince your fellow citizen to adopt a policy even though, in fact, it is rational for them to endorse it. Likewise, some of your fellow citizens might not accept your proposed policy because they hold some crazy beliefs. But beliefs that are not arbitrary features. These are beliefs that they seriously endorse and they think they can defend. Gauss does not trivialize religious beliefs here. So, says Gauss, you don't have to be able to get all people to agree with your proposed policies, but you still have to justify those policies. So what does that mean now? Well, Gauss helpfully distinguishes between a few different models of justification, which I'll try to survey as briefly as possible. He starts out with closed justification. Now this was Rawls's approach, although he didn't call it that. In closed justification, a belief is justified to your fellow citizen if the beliefs that they already hold would commit them to accepting your policy. But that's too demanding. For this reason, Gauss says, it closed justification, that is, loses its character as a liberal doctrine for little, if anything, is the object of consensus among reasonable people. So the problem with the Rawlsian closed view is that it is too dependent on whatever a person just happens to believe when, in fact, a person can believe some things that she just shouldn't believe. So the next option is God's eye justification. Okay, so a person might not advocate your policy even though they should do so if they were better informed. So God's eye justification idealizes away from what your fellow citizen actually believes, and it says that your belief has been adequately justified if it aligns with the beliefs that your, your fellow citizen would hold if they were correctly informed. Basically, if they were God, if they were omniscient and knew everything, then they would endorse your policy. But as a liberal democratic principle, this is a failure from the beginning. We've gone from one extreme to the other and made no progress. Closed justification deferred too much to your fellow citizen by allowing their ignorance or poor reason to put a stop to any policy they didn't want. Uh, it showed too much respect for them in a way in this process. But now there's really no need for a democratic engagement at all with this new model. If our belief that supports the policy is true, then that's all we need. And who cares what our fellow citizen thinks? Provided the belief is true, then it's justified in this sense, and we don't even have to try to justify it to them. Not only that, but we've presumed that we have the perspective of God, of omniscience. Gauss proposes what I think is a very promising middle ground, a model of justification that he calls open justification. Here, you don't actually have to persuade someone. That's too demanding, but you have to be able to do more than just know that you're right when you're proposing a policy. Here, Alf, that's a hypothetical citizen, Alf might hold to all kinds of prejudices and false beliefs that would lead him to reject a policy, and yet we still might be justified in advocating that this policy be imposed on him. Because if he were a bit more reasonable, and open to new information and consideration of other factors, he would or should endorse it. Stated differently, a person can be openly justified in accepting policy P 
and yet still, like Alf, reject P. In Gauss's words, and he uses the symbol beta in this quote to refer to a policy, open justification asks the question, he says, are there considerations of which Alf could be made aware that are grounded in his system of beliefs, and, if integrated, would they undermine the justification of Beta, given his revised system of beliefs? Put somewhat more elegantly, I actually thought the first way of saying it was elegant, if Alf's beliefs were subject to extensive criticism and additional information, does his viewpoint commit him to revise his beliefs? Now, I think that what Gauss is saying is good common sense. In a nutshell, the approach is this. Look at your fellow citizens' existing beliefs, plus their beliefs about what would count as new evidence, plus imagine what they should accept if they thought about it reasonably, based on their existing beliefs and their criteria of evidence when subjected to criticism and review, and any relevant new information. If your policy is such that they should accept them based on those factors, then it's openly justified, and you can advance it in a democratic society. Now, of course, they might still actually reject it, but at least it's justified in the right way. We're showing respect for them, because the level of justification still depends on what your fellow citizen is able to understand and accept. Okay, at that point, we'll stop for a mini-breather and then come back to the next question. This is Bob. Before, Bob relied on the internet to enhance his geek status. <laughs> After using Technorama for natural geek enhancement, Bob is rolling his 20-sided die, reciting Holy Grail lines, and answering Star Trek trivia with the best of them. And he has a happy missus at the home, too. Technorama for natural geek enhancement. Only available at ChuckChat.com. Technorama. If you haven't heard them before, check them out at the iTunes store or at their website, chuckchat.com. Where were we? Uh, that's right. Our second question. Are any religious beliefs justified? Well, I still think that there are some problems with open justification, um, but it's not so bad. You know, there, are, there are holes, for example, if if people's beliefs could be biased or mistaken, well, couldn't their criteria of evidence be biased and mistaken as well? But let's just run with it for now because it's promising. When you're advancing a policy, it has to be such that in light of your fellow citizens' existing beliefs and standards of evidence, there are facts and arguments that they could be exposed to that would bring them to a point where they ought to endorse your policy. And if there are, then your policy is sufficiently justified, even if your fellow citizen rejects your policy. In fact, as a model of justification, open justification can apply equally well to justifying our beliefs as it applies to justifying our policy. So where are we now? Well, remember the argument that we started with. 1. All policies that we advocate must be justified in the right way. 2. Policies that have religious grounds lack the right kind of justification. And so 3. We should not advocate policies that depend on religious reasons. I'm granting the first premise our policies should be justified. I have now settled on a model of justification, namely open justification. So there's only one more question. Could a policy that had religious grounds be justified? It certainly could be. If we could show that our fellow citizen has beliefs and standards of evidence that ought... Ouch. 
to commit her to the policy, or if those standards ought to commit her to the beliefs that are our reasons for endorsing that policy in the first place. I'm going to look at the possibility of the latter just briefly. Are any religious beliefs openly justified? And if they are, then a policy cannot lack open justification just because it is advanced on religious grounds. What would it mean for a religious belief to lack open justification? Well, the policy in question would need to be such that, in light of what the other person currently takes to count as evidence, their own viewpoint would commit them, commit them, to rejecting those beliefs if they were exposed to all the relevant evidence and if their present beliefs about my religious beliefs were subject to extensive critique and review and reasonable consideration. Now, is it reasonable for political scientists to just assume that religious beliefs do fail to be justified in this way? Not at all. In fact, Gauss never even makes a serious attempt to argue that religious beliefs fail to be justified in this way, nor do any of the writers who, as far as I can tell, advocate basically the same position on religion in the public square. This isn't meant to be an episode about arguments for religious claims, so I'll be brief, but plenty of religious people think that many important religious claims are openly justified, even though they don't use that term. Volumes have been written on arguments for the existence of God, the nature of God, theological ethics, and so forth. The latter part of the 20th century saw something of a turning of the tide within academia, especially in many parts of theology and philosophy, away from skepticism and towards religious belief. Moral arguments, teleological arguments, arguments from beauty, C.S. Lewis's argument from reason, cosmological arguments, all of these have been advanced with much intellectual rigor at the same time that political philosophers, so it seems, have merrily assumed that religious beliefs are simply private affairs because they cannot be advanced on the basis of reason that is fit to be heard in public with any expectation of being taken seriously. Now you might be tempted to say, oh, but those arguments are weak. I don't buy them. They're not sound enough. But bear in mind, beliefs do not fail to be justified in this way because intelligent citizens like you reject them. We can't argue from the perspective of omniscience, remember. We've ruled that out. The arguments I'm talking about are such that those who use them have every reason to think that their fellow citizens, in light of what they know and hold as standards of evidence, should grant them. So, even granting the requirements of open justification, there should be no barrier to the religious citizen who does, as Christopher Eberly, and I hope I'm pronouncing that rightly, suggests, namely abide by the following principles that he calls the ideal of conscientious engagement. This is the process. 1. Seek to arrive at a justification for L, that's your policy, that is sound given one's own system of beliefs and values. 2. Refuse to endorse L if one does not have a good justification for it in one's own system of values and beliefs. 3. Seek to convey to others one's reasons for coercing them. That's the important part, as so is this. Number 4. Endeavor to arrive at a public justification for L, one that connects in the appropriate way to the beliefs and values of one's fellow citizens. 5. Pay attention to others' objections to and criticisms of one's reasons for coercing them and aim to learn from them. And 6. Refuse to endorse any L that violates the integrity of one's fellow citizens. Now, points 3 and 4, rightly construed, are perfectly capable of ensuring that when a citizen follows these steps, she is not violating the principles of open justification. 
The religious citizen, says Eberly, is still showing liberal respect for her fellow citizen. So how does Gerald Gaust respond to this? Well, he will have none of this when he reviewed Eberly's words. Notice that when he responds, however, it's not by appealing to open justification, but to something else much stronger. He says, I confess that my intuitions about the requirements of respect are better expressed by Master Yoda. Do or do not. There is no try. It's all very well to try to make me see your point, but if your point is one that I have no good justification to embrace, then in the end I am simply being subjected to your power, however well-intentioned and conscientious you may be. Now that may be a response to Eberly, but the goalpost has just been shifted big time. It appears that if a religious person meets the criteria of open justification with respect to me, which does not require that I be successfully persuaded, the new goalpost very quickly becomes successful persuasion, which is not the same thing at all. It's clear to me what just happened. I'm not being cynical. This is clear. As soon as this liberal philosopher realized that his theory allowed religious people to live in public like religious people, he changed his rules. In other words, the theory did not exist because it was a good one, having some side effects for religious people, though, the theory was engineered to have a certain effect on religion in public life, and when this philosopher realized that it didn't have the effect, he just changed the theory. Okay, that's a complete lack of integrity. And so I think that when the religious sorry, when the liberal says that we should only endorse policies or beliefs that are openly justified, and therefore we should not endorse any policy that rests on religious beliefs, what he effectively says is my fellow religious citizens, you must accept that whatever you might think about it, in fact there just are no reasons to accept your ludicrous arguments in favour of your stupid religious beliefs that anybody should accept in light of their standards of evidence. And that is why they are ruled out as being openly justified. Now, not only is that claim false, because there are at least some non-religious people whose standards of evidence may well lead to the acceptance of many arguments for religious beliefs, but in saying the above, a liberal will just put himself at loggerheads with much of the religious community about what is and is not openly justified. Given all that uh, Gaussian liberalism is explicitly committed to is the requirement that policies be openly justified. You know, there's no list there of policies that are and are not justified in the right way. The liberal who thinks that prohibitionism is an automatic consequence of liberalism is surreptitiously combining, I love that word, surreptitiously combining political liberalism with religious skepticism, while labeling that combined position only as liberalism, which is not very forthcoming or honest. In saying all this, I think that I'm being rather restrained in my comments. I think that Edward Fesser is less restrained but nonetheless fair in my estimation when he says, quoting now, The problem in the view of many liberals is that religious considerations are matters of faith, where faith connotes in their mind a kind of groundless commitment, a will to believe that for which there is no objective evidence. Opinions on matters of public policy, they would say, can only appropriately be arrived at via methods of argument accessible by members of the political community, not by reference to the idiosyncratic and subjective feelings of a minority. He says now, 
If religious arguments were in general really like this, then I would agree with the liberal that they ought to be kept out of the public square. But in fact, this liberal depiction of religion is a ludicrous caricature and manifests just the sort of ignorance and bigotry of which liberals frequently accuse others. Amen. I should say Amen. I'm not American. Part of me wants to apologize for the length of what I've just covered here, but there really wasn't any satisfactory way to divide it up, and I think it was pretty smooth going. And a lot of this stuff was seriously summarized, so just deal with it. It was much harder for me than it was for you to listen to, I can assure you. You can listen to it again if you need to go over any of the points, and I will make the transcript available at the blog at the Beretta site, beretta-online.com. Com. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share about anything you've heard, or anything in general, I guess, email me, podcast at beretta-online.com. You can even email me an audio clip with your comments, and I may even play it on the show, so it's like you're on my show. Now, moving on. And this week in history, beginning June 2nd, 597 AD, Augustine, no, not that one, the other one, missionary to England and the very first Archbishop of Canterbury, baptizes Saxon King Ethelbert, the first Christian English king. The missionary's tomb in Canterbury bears this epitaph. Here rests Augustine, the first Archbishop of Canterbury who, being sent hither by Gregory, Bishop of Rome, reduced King Ethelbert and his nation from the worship of idols to the faith of Christ. June 2nd, 1491, Henry VIII, the famous English king who went from being called the defender of the faith by the Pope for attacking Martin Luther, to galvanizing the English Reformation, is born in Greenwich. June 3rd, 1647, the Puritan British Parliament bans Christmas and other holidays. June 3rd, 1963, Pope John XXIII, convener of the Second Vatican Council, dies. He was expected to be merely a caretaker pope, but he shocked the church and the world, ushering in some of the Roman Catholic Church's most momentous changes in history, making moves to undo, or at least appear to undo, the hostility of the likes of the Council of Trent. Not to worry, current Pope Benedict XVI will surely undo all that. June 4th, 1873, Charles F. Parham is born in Muscatine, Muscatine, not sure, Iowa. In 1900, he founded the Bethel Bible School, where so-called speaking in tongues broke out, marking the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. Well, I guess hindsight is 2020. June 5th, 1191, England's Richard I, the Lionhearted of England, sets sail for Muslim-controlled Acre in the Third Crusade. After helping Philip II, King of France, capture the city, Richard took Jafar and negotiated Christian access to Jerusalem, which was under Muslim control. June 5th, 1414, Bohemian reformer Jan Hus appears before the Council of Constance. Shockingly, unexpectedly, the Catholic Church ends up burning him as a heretic the following July. June 5, 1661, the English mathematician and physicist Isaac Newton is admitted as a student to Trinity, Trinity College, Cambridge. But, quote, the greatest scientific genius the world has ever known, end quote, actually spent less of his life studying science than theology, writing 1.3 million words on biblical subjects. June 4, 1928, court case decided Olmsted versus United States. The Supreme Court decided that wiretapping by the federal government is legal no matter what the reason or motivation because it is not expressly prohibited in the Constitution. Ah, doesn't that make you feel safe? June 4th in the church calendar, Pentecost is celebrated, the event in the Book of Acts. Now, Pentecost is a time of year when the giving of the law was celebrated, which enhances the significance of the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, 
which was seen by the Christians as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that God, by His Spirit, would write His law on the hearts of His people. June 5, 1967, Israel launches a preemptive attack on Egypt and other Arab nations. During the six-day conflict, which came to be known as, surprise, surprise, the Six-Day War, Israel captured the Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip and the west bank of the Jordan River. June 5, 2004, former U.S. President Ronald Reagan dies. Reagan was famous for his role in the removal of the so-called Iron Curtain, seeing the fall of the communist USSR. June 6, 1832, English philosopher Jeremy Bentham dies. Gosh, everyone dies. Along with John Stuart Mill, Bentham is remembered as an influential thinker who propagated the view now called utilitarianism, the greatest good for the greatest number. June 7, 1934, Cardinal Dennis Doherty of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia declared in a letter read from every pulpit in the Archdiocese that movies pose, and I quote, <clears throat> the greatest menace to faith and morals in America today, end quote and that Catholics must, quote, stay away from them, end quote. This was, and I quote again, not merely a counsel, but a positive command, binding on the conscience under pain of sin, end quote. No, not pain of death. He didn't quite go that far. The order was never revoked. The order remained in place and theoretically still does. Doherty himself, however, would later install a screening room in his residence where he and his guests would... Watch movies. And on that note of complete double standards, it's the blog roundup. Uh, Let's see what's in the blogosphere lately. Number one on my list, John Hamm over at Right Angles, which is a subdomain of the John Locke Foundation. Uh, This is at triangle.johnlocke.org. On his blog had this to say on why we, that is America, don't elect intellectuals. He says, A New York Times book review exercise yesterday seemed almost a parody. They asked, mostly left-wing, intellectuals to suggest books for the presidential candidates. It's kind of moot now, there aren't as many as there were once. The more left-wing the intellectual, the more absurd and pretentious the response. Can anyone say Katrina Vanden Heuvel? I can, but I don't know who she is. He says, read this piece and you'll understand why Americans don't elect intellectuals to almost anything. Okay, so I read the piece. My intellectual sensibilities, supposing that they work as they should, are a little bit offended by some of these people being summarily described as intellectuals. Some of them are simply as John said, mostly left-leaning, American writers. Now, I know writers might think of themselves as intellectuals. In fact, some of them may even be intelligent. I don't know, but it could happen. But then Al Gore thinks of himself as an educator as well. That don't make it so. In any case, I found it somewhat cringe-inducing. I agree with him, in other words, with two real exceptions. The historian Gary Wills opened his comments by noting that very few politicians would ever actually read an entire book, so he suggests an essay to Obama, Clinton, and McCain. My other favorite was the closing answer by Gore Vidal. I hope I'm saying that right. He says, I can only answer in the negative. I want them not to read the New York Times while subscribing to the Financial Times. Number two on my list, the anonymous writer over at Hell's Handmaiden, handmaiden, but the guy is male, I do know that much, had this to say recently about creationism and intelligent design. Oh, the fun this is going to be. He was commenting on a critical reviewer of Ben Stein's recent movie, Expelled. 
the reviewer had said, among other things, that he had learned in this movie that creationism and intelligent design were not the same thing. So he had learned something, even though he didn't like the movie generally. Now, this is my comment. That's an important distinction to make, and here's why. Creationism is a label that refers not merely to the belief that there is a creator or designer of the universe. It's not nearly that broad. Otherwise, virtually every theist, whether they believe that the earth was made just thousands of years ago and every species was created directly, or whether they held that the earth and the universe were billions of years old, or even if they were evolutionists, would be a creationist. And so the term would just become worthless. It would lack value. It would be useless. Creationism is a term that has come to refer to a specific movement, claiming that the universe was created just thousands of years ago, that the opening chapters of Genesis are absolutely literal history, and usually that there was a global flood, and so forth. It means, for example, rejecting much of what science textbooks teach about astronomy and geology. Now, intelligent design is committed to, quite literally, none of that. I mean, absolutely none of that. At all. Intelligent design is the view that the complexity of living organisms that exist today is such that they could not have come into existence by unguided processes, by chance, and that they present evidence of design. Okay, so it's quite a different position. Compatible, but obviously not the same at all. Now, you can believe that and reject everything that I've just said about creationism. I mean, heck, you could believe that the Earth was created a trillion years ago by the flying spaghetti monster if you really wanted to. For that matter, you could be a religious agnostic and not even claim to know the reason for the appearance of design, and yet you could still be a proponent of intelligent design. So obviously, and very obviously, I think, creationism is not intelligent design. The reviewer is right. Now, all of this holds true, regardless of whether or not there is any merit to creationism or to intelligent design. So what I'm saying here is not in support or opposition to either of those two things. But our friend, our unnamed friend at Hell's Handmaiden, Hell's Handmaiden, isn't at all impressed with the distinction between ID, intelligent design, and creationism. He writes, You see, ID's magic, its power, is in divorcing itself from the creationists. Creationism is religious. That's bad. It can't be taught in school. ID, as its proponents would have it, isn't religious and therefore can't be creationism or isn't creationism and therefore can't be religious. I'm interjecting here and saying can be religious, isn't necessarily. Continue with the quote. Depending on the particular ID argument. The rub is that the foundational claim of intelligent design is that something created, and he's got created in bold italicized text, the world, and in particular the life in it. Now ID theorists don't use the word created because that sounds, well, creationist e. Instead, they say designed, but that is just wordplay. The theory still postulates a creator who creates. That makes it a type of creationism. Guess what I'm going to say to that? Uh, he sums up. I'll continue quoting from him. I don't know, maybe I like the pain. But I ask, what happens if you tell an overwhelmingly Christian nation that something powerful enough to create a universe actually did create the universe and that there is science to support the claim? Most people will probably conclude that, well, that something sure sounds like God. I'm just using the kind of accent he's probably expecting us to imagine. But that isn't what the science says. I'd best just stick with intelligent designer and leave the questions open as to whether that designer is God or Abraham. Right? 
wrong. You tell that to this country, tell that to six-year-olds, and they conclude that science has proven Jesus, which is the point. Successful ID is successful Bible-thumping, but with an aura of innocence around it. That is the insidious truth about ID theory. It is stealth, fundy creationism. This is rubbish. I am sorry. No, I'm not sorry. This is rubbish. No proponent of intelligent design would ever say that the scientific evidence to which they appeal has proven Jesus, as this writer puts it. Now, naturally, a proponent of a religion will give their God, in this case Jesus, the credit for the existence and nature of the universe and what it contains. But fear of what people will say about the conclusions drawn by science and using that as a reason not to present certain views as scientific is about as unscientific an outlook as you could ever hope to find. It's like saying that astronomers should never teach Christians that there was a Big Bang because, you know, Christians will be Christians and they'll somehow find a way of shoehorning Jesus into it. I think this guy speaks for himself. Um, number three, over at the Ironic Catholic, which is a kind of humorous Catholic blog, we read this. Michael's has a craft sale. Now, Michael's, I believe, is, is the store associated with a Catholic diocese. I could be wrong, but it makes sense to think of it that way. Michael's has a craft sale, five DREs hospitalized. Now, a DRE is a district religious educator, I found out. Reading the story, they present... Santa Fe, New Mexico, in what the diocese is calling an unfortunate coincidence, five local directors of religious education were trampled in a 75% off craft sale at Michael's Arts and Crafts this, morning, this, this Monday morning. Mary Elizabeth Hunt of St. Alphonsus Liguri Parish, speaking through a swath of bandages covering her bloody face, said, I thought we were going to help the parish come under budget this year for once when I saw the sale paper. I mean popsicle sticks, 1,000 for one dollar. Think how many decorative crosses that would have made. Her eyes welled with tears, and the pipe cleaners. They even had liturgical colors in stock. Now, this nearly made a fool of me. I nearly made the mistake of commenting on this as an actual and unfortunate but inexplicably hilarious news story until I got to the bottom and read that this was in the category fake news. Catholics always making stuff up. Number four. Richard over at Philosophy Etc. posted this one actually back in 2005, but hey, my podcast didn't even exist back then, so I'm not really slow in bringing it up because I never had the chance. I'm just making up for non-existence. Philosophical Humor is the title of the blog entry. Now, I know some of you out there won't get this at all, and you will think that my enjoyment of this joke constitutes evidence of weirdness. But on the off chance that anyone does get it and enjoys it as much as I did, I present the following joke, which Richard in turn got from the University of Innsbruck. The joke, it's a list of causes of death for famous philosophers. Wittgenstein became the late Wittgenstein. Plato caved in. If you know anything about Plato and his famous cave analogy, that will be hilarious. But if not, you'll think it sucked. Pierce was abducted. That's not really dying. That doesn't count. Moore, by his own hand, obviously. Marx, capital punishment. Das Kapital. 
Kripke went rigid. Jackson, so red. You guys are going to have to find out who these philosophers are now, so you know why these are funny. Heraclitus fell in the same river twice. <laughs> Hair, wrong prescriptions. If you don't know who these guys are and what they said, you're not going to get these. You're seriously not. You need to find out who these guys are. And then come back and listen to this again. As I say this, I just saw a mouse scuttle across my floor. I kid you not. I'll get it. Goodman. Gruesome bleen infliction. See, I don't get that one. That's the one I don't get. Freud. Slipped. <laughs> and Bentham fell off his stilts. And on that note, I think I'll draw things to a close for episode three. Now, be sure to check out episode four when it's available. I'll be doing something new, which doesn't mean much at this stage because we've only had three episodes, so it's not hard to do anything new. I'll be treating you to a rendition of a parody of Plato. Plus, I'll be saying a thing or two about some doomed versions of the infamous problem of evil. If you have any brilliant ideas for episode topics, or if you have any questions or comments about what you've heard, or if you just want to shamelessly smuggle your name into my show and get famous, email me, podcast at beretta-online.com. And for now, it's so long from... Say hello to my little friend!